Well, let me ask you, any of you have an anxiety-free week? Was this a week where you never were up in the night thinking about something, never worried, never felt like the weight of the world was on your shoulders? I bet it probably wasn't. Did you have, any of you, an envy-free week? Was this a week where you never were envious or jealous or wished that your life was a little bit different or you had the bottom line or the hairline of somebody else or wish, well, why my, can't my family or my people or my job be like theirs? My guess is there was always someone you're like, oh, I wish I was just like them. Or did you have a burden-free week? Were you carrying around some of life's heavy burdens? Or was this a week where nothing seemed to, to happen at all? Everything fell off your back like a water off a duck. My guess is there's a knot in your stomach about something. But I wouldn't be surprised that just in the last few minutes, as you were listening and worshiping, maybe singing that song, that somehow those burdens felt a little bit lighter, or maybe the knot in your stomach lessened, or maybe for the first time in a while you thought, I feel a little closer to God, or maybe God can do something, or you had a little bit of hope. You see, that's the power of worship, that when we worship, it reminds us that maybe the same God who parted the waters for Moses, or the same God that broke down the walls of Jericho, or the same God that allowed Peter to walk on water is the same God who can help me in my situation. So today we want to talk about just that power of worship and what worship is. We're beginning a brand new series. We're calling it We the Church because we're the church together. And our people have said, oh, well, we the people, that's the U.S. Constitution, or we the North, that's who we are. Well, the truth is we are the church The church is not something you attend, it's something we're part of. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die so that people could just kind of attend church. He went to the cross and gave his life so that we could become part of his body, this brand new identity of who he is. And so for the next few weeks, we wanna talk about what it means to be part of the church, what the church is to do, look at some of the things of why we do the things even we do at church. Why does church do that? And today we wanna talk about worship. And to understand that worship is not just the prelude to the message. It's not the opening act. It's just not to fill up an hour time space. That what we do in worship is spiritually powerful. And often when we worship, we're singing. That's what we can do corporately. And there's lots of studies about the power of singing that singing reduces anxiety, it releases endorphins. In fact, there are studies that say that singing actually prolongs our life. But we're talking also about worship. In the same way, worship is powerful. We're gonna have a little interactive service today. We're gonna do things a little bit differently. And what I wanna do is just to begin, and then we're gonna worship some more, but to begin by talking about four things that worship does in our life, how worship is powerful for us. The first thing that worship does is it sets our world aright. It puts everything in God's original created Order. David writes in Psalm 22, 3, yet you are holy and throned upon the praises of Israel. God, you are made right. You are holy. Some translations, older ones, said God inhabits, is present in the praises of his people. The better translation is God is put on his throne when people praise. And what worship reminds us of, that God is in control. God is in charge. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe, not me. 
And why does life get out of whack? It's because I try to get on the throne. I try to kick God off and put myself on the throne and I wanna run my life and do things. And we wonder, why do I feel anxiety? Why do I feel stressed? Because we think it's all about me. And worship says, no, wait a minute, it's about him. And what worship does is it brings the divine into our natural world. It brings the spiritual into the world in which we live. And there's something powerful about that. And when we worship, it's the one thing we do just for God alone. You know, we read the Bible for us. We pray to help us. Worship is the one thing we don't do for us. Now, there are benefits, but we do for God. And it's not that God is egotistical and needs our praise and worship. It's just that he's worth it. He's owed it. It's who he is. And worship is that one thing we just do for him alone. And in a moment, we're going to worship again. And it's just for him. We forget about us and we do it for him. Second thing that worship does is that it shapes us. It creates us. We become like what we worship. And we were really made, created by God to be natural born worshipers. We will worship something. And if we're not worshiping God, then we ask, what are we worshiping? And, and, and worship in general just means to give God worth. It says, this is valuable. This is significant. And when we keep putting value on something and give it worth and worship it, it shapes and it forms us. If, if, if you're worshiping supermodels, then kind of the outer attractiveness and, and, and outer beauty, that becomes all-consuming in your life. If you worship uh, athletes, then all of a sudden, like competition becomes important in your life. If you worship actors and actresses, then all of a sudden there's a blurring of the lines between fantasy and reality. If you worship business, then all of a sudden getting ahead and having more, it becomes important. It shapes us. But when we worship, we tell the truth about God and we sometimes then dismiss the lies that we're told. When we worship, we realize the one with the most toys doesn't win. When we worship, we realize that life is, is just more than eating and drinking. When we worship, we realize that it's just not our outer world, but our inner world that matters. We realize the truth of who we are and who we were created to be. And when we worship and telling God the truth, it changes our feelings. See, our feelings toward God won't change until we tell the truth and know the truth about who he is. And in worship, that's what we do. We declare the truth about who God is and how he works in our life. And when we do that, we sing truth into our soul and it shapes us. And as we do that, we enter into this wonderful kind of self-forgetfulness that it's not about us, it's about God. It's about who he is. And this is what happened with David. He was a moment in the, the Old Testament where he's so excited and so full, full, of, full of worship that he dances naked. He just strips off and, and he's dancing naked. Now, I'm not suggesting you should dance naked in your uh, living room or kitchen or don't come to church and do that. But, but the picture is of self-forgetfulness. He's so enwrapped by God that he forgets about himself. That's worship when we realize who God is and it's just for him. Third thing worship does is that it protects us. It's spiritually powerful. And I think we forget that. There's 
numerous passages in the scriptures that talk about just the power of worship, how God moves and how obstacles are moved away when people worship. One of the best is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And uh, Israel is engaged in battle against Moab and some others. And the King Jehoshaphat is really worried. And he's on his knees. He's saying, God, praying, would you help us to win? And God does something. He says, hey, Jehoshaphat, it's not up to you. It's not your battle. Like, and we realize sometimes we're fighting battles that aren't ours. And God says, this is my battle. And sometimes we have to leave some battles to God and say, God, I I can do my best. I need to trust you, but I can't fight this. You do this. And so God says to Joseph, I want you to put the, uh, the worship team, the choir, out front, I want them to go first in battle, which imagine how intimidating would that be to the worship team? They're not armed or anything. They're just singing and watch what happens. And we read in verse 21 of Second Chronicles 20, and when they, he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. Isn't that amazing? As the worship team went, there was God brought confusion, and Israel won the battle. And it was won in praise. When God gave Israel Jericho, how did they do it? Through worshiping God, blowing the trumpets, singing. When God released Jonah from the, the, the big fish, what did God do? It was when Jonah started singing and praising. When Peter or Paul and Silas were in prison and they praised, God brought freedom to them. There's something about worship for us. Martin Luther writes about that. He says, music is hateful and intolerable to the devil. I truly believe and do not mind saying that there is no art like music next to theology. It is the only art next to theology that can calm the agitation of the soul, which plainly shows that the devil, the source of anxiety and sadness, flees from the sound of music as he does from religious worship. That's why the scriptures are full of psalms and hymns in which praise is given to God. And so there's something powerful that the devil knows the power of worship. Some suggest that he was the lead worshiper in heaven before he rebelled against God. He knows what worship is. He can't stand when God is worshiped and he has to flee and kind of leave us alone in the power of worship. And the fourth thing worship does, it unifies us. There's something powerful about when disparate people, people from different backgrounds and countries and nations and and situations, all come together and they say, hey, we agree because we're singing these songs that our focus is on God and God is more important to us together than all the things that divide us. And we live in such a divided world where we critique and criticize everything and and we're invited to worship together. And when we worship, whether it's different homes coming together, worshiping on a Sunday morning, we're reminded that we are part of God's family, that we have a common savior, that we have one father, that we are worshiping together, that different generations worship together. And there's something about worship that brings generations in Psalm 145 verse four, David says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They will speak of the mighty 
my, of the awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. And, and here David says there's something about one generation speaking to the other that it brings all people together that we need people who have walked with Jesus for many decades to share what Jesus has done to those who are newer in the faith and those who are younger to share, hey, that same Jesus is at work in my life. And I wanna encourage you that you've passed that on to me. There's something powerful happens when we worship together. And so we're just gonna take a moment and I invite you to worship. And maybe in the chat, uh, as, as we sing this song, I invite you just to share what worship has done for you, how powerful it is, what worship means for you. And just as we do that, we're gonna do something just for God. We're gonna do it for God alone. This is not for us, it's for Him. Let's worship Him together. Well, let me ask you, in those last few moments, were you praising God? Were you giving thanks? Were you worshiping? Were you glorifying God? Were you magnifying Him? What were you doing? And you know, a lot of times there's a number of different words that we talk about and we kind of lump them together, all as kind of worship or singing in some ways. And yet praise and gratitude and thanksgiving and worship, they all have some unique meanings. And in some ways they speak of different perspectives and postures of our heart in worshiping God. And so I invite you just to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And this is a moment in David's life where he's celebrating. He's writing a psalm of celebration because uh, the Ark of the Covenant, this uh, box, so to speak, that was covered in gold that contained some special things that was a symbol of God's presence and power with them was returned to Jerusalem. And David writes the psalm and he talks first about praise. He says, we're going to praise God. In the beginning of uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and particularly verse eight says, give praise to the Lord and proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he's done. Sing to him, sing, there's that word again, praise to him and tell of his wonderful acts. And the first thing David says is sing praise. Now what praise is, is just talking about the reputation of God, his character, his attributes, his excellencies, who he is. When we praise, we talk about who God is, not what he's done. We'll get to that. That's gratitude, thanksgiving. But we talk about who he is. Now, when someone in our home has a birthday, we have birthday cake. And then around the table, we say to that person, one thing we really appreciate about them, who they are, how God has made them, how, how they are unique and valuable. We talk about their character and their identity. And that's what praise is. And, and the more we know about God and the more we've experienced that, the deeper the praise is because we see he's faithful, he's loving, he brings peace, he's kind to us. He's a just God. He's a forever God. He never leaves us. He's faithful. He's always present. It's all those attributes of God. And this is so important because there are moments, and let's be honest, when we don't feel like singing or praising. And maybe you're in that moment now where you think, ah, oh, I, I don't have much. I feel disappointed. I feel hurt by God. Maybe I feel rejected. Uh, maybe you've had a loss. Maybe there's been to a funeral and you think, God, why are you doing this? And, and we want to kind of withhold things because we're like, I don't feel like praising. And certainly there's in our worship, you read the Psalms, David's very honest. He talks about 
his feelings and emotions. And we need to be very honest and forthright with where we are. But praise is not saying, oh God, I'm so thankful for this and you've done this and I'm so grateful. Praise, it's a sacrifice. The Bible talks about it several times as the sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice is giving God something that, that's really hard for us to do. And a sacrifice of praise is, is saying, God, I'm honest about my situation. Here's where I am, but I need you. And I need you in these particular situation to be this. And when we praise God, calling out his excellencies and his character, we do so kind of in a hopeful way. We say, God, I need you to do this. I'm asking you, would you be faithful to me? Would you bring justice to me? Would you restore this to me? Would you bring peace to me? Would I be able to feel your love? When we praise, it's sometimes a sacrifice because we're asking God, hey, can you do this? I know this is who you are. Can you do this? And David moves then from praise to thanksgiving, which is more specific. Praise is kind of general about who God is. Thanksgiving is specific. And in verse 12, he says, remember the wonders he has done. He's like, there's specific things you've done. His miracles, the judgments he pronounced, you his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of God. He's the Lord our God. His judgments are all in the earth. And David moves in from generalized praise, praise his name to, hey, remember what he's done. And in David, there was a lot. He, he helped kill Goliath. He um, was a, a mighty warrior. He became king. He brought uh, the Ark of the Covenant back. He was specifically saying to God, here are things that have done. And sometimes God needs our thanksgiving. What has God done in your life? What are you particularly thankful for? Not just once a year when we have a turkey and have thanksgiving, but what has God done? Because gratitude that is not expressed appears as what? Ingratitude. When we don't express that gratitude, it feels like someone's not thankful. If you do something for someone and they never say thanks, what do you feel? Oh, well, they're ungrateful. Well, are they? You don't know. They could be grateful. They just haven't expressed it. And unexpressed, it feels like ingratitude. Jesus healed 12, 10 lepers. Uh, they all went away to show that they were healing. It says on their way, they were all healed, but only one came back. And Jesus said, well, where are the others? Well, they're going and living their life. And, and Jesus was grateful for the one who showed gratitude. Were the other nine not grateful? I'm sure they were grateful but they didn't express it. And so there's something powerful when we express our gratitude to God. And, and otherwise, it feels like we're grumbling and complaining that we have such a narrow focus on life. And there are things in my life that keep me sometimes from being grateful. I have unrealistic expectations. God, you haven't done what I wanted. So I'm not really grateful that sometimes we're envious of other people. We are nearsighted and look for certain things. We don't see God at work. Where's God been at work? And just in the chat um, or in the comment section, if you're watching this later, I encourage you, write something now. Just go on the chat, write something now you are grateful for, thankful for. How is God at work? Encourage one another. Gratitude unexpressed feels like ingratitude. And then David, he moves from praise to specific of thanksgiving. He moves to the heart, the heart of worship. 
And worship is a different word. It's a giving worth. It kind of has also at the root, I bow down. I'm, I'm humbled. I give something value. He says in verse 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Worship before him. Tremble before him. And what worship speaks is not the outward expression of of gratitude or thanksgiving or the attributes of God. It's the inner expression of our heart. And what worship really does is, maybe this isn't the best way, but we realize how small we are in comparison to how great God is. And, And if you've not ever experienced that, not ever come to a moment where you realize how great, powerful, mighty God is, maybe you've never really kind of understood worship. I remember years and years ago, I was at a a, a Christian festival, 20,000 people or so, and a musician got up to start singing and he talked about the greatness of God. And, And all of a sudden, all of us like immediately felt the presence of God and we're flat on our face. It was like, God is here. And and that's my prayer at Bayview, that the first service, the presence of God would just show up and we'd be kind of flat on our face and people in the second service would just come and and join in and experience what God is doing, that we would see him, know him, worship him. So David writes in the Psalms, he says, kind of like come into the gates of the city of Jerusalem, come in closer to God and worship with praise. Then you come into uh, the temple with thanksgiving. We kind of come with a grateful attitude. We worship God in awe. And, and then David, he talks about another kind of aspect of worship. It's hallelujah is the word. It's the word praise here, but he uses a different word in Hebrew, it's Tehillah. In verse 35, it says, Cry out, save us, our God. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And he uses praise here, but this is a victory shout. It's a victory chant. It's a celebration. It's kind of like I've come into God's presence. I see what he's done. I've worshiped him. I humbled him. God knows my need and God has met my need. And so this is a victory chant. Hallelujah. That's what that word praise in Hebrew is. It's hallelujah. And that God is worthy. And this is like a celebration. This is a party like no other. This is how people all partied I'm sure, a few years ago when the Raptors won uh, the championship and they were filling the streets and you could hardly move and there was celebration. This is what like a party, a victory chant would be where if the Leafs, the next time they win the Stanley Cup, this is like what people who have lived in Missouri for 13 years and realize that it is the uh, Missouri, the Kansas City Chiefs that are going to the Super Bowl. This is like how they feel. And this is when God is at work, when he's alive, when he answers prayer, when he moves. It is a celebration, a victory chant. So we're just going to talk about what Jesus does. The worship team's going to sing a song and we're going to just be reminded of everything that Jesus has done. And, And I encourage you again, write something in the chat that you're thankful for or grateful for. Would you be reminded of what God has done? Let's worship him together. Well, communication experts, they say that half our communication, half is verbal. What we say and how we say it, 
The other half, essentially, is our posture, is nonverbal communication. And, you know, when we cross our arms, we're defensive. If our hands are on the hips, we're aggressive. If we're pointing at someone, we're often angry. If we're clapping our hands, we're appreciative. If we're jumping up and down, we're celebratory. Our body says a lot. And when you read the Psalms, David talks about these different postures of worship. He's like, dance before the Lord. He's like, lifting your hands, clap your hands, all you people, bow down before him. And it's like, he is like eager and energetic, which you use like your whole body to worship him. That how we communicate our worship, it seems to matter. And so as we kind of wrap up today, I just want to talk briefly about four postures of worship and, and why we do them. Why do we do that in church? Or we see people do this, like, why do they do that? And the first is what we typically do when we worship is stand, right? That most of the time when we sing and we say, well, why do we stand? Why do we do that? And in Psalm 119, verse 120, David says, my flesh trembles in fear of you and I stand in awe of the Lord that there's something about standing and, and being standing that, that, that shows respect, right? When someone important comes in the room, we stand up. When the bride comes down the aisle, we stand up. When we sing the national anthem, we stand up. When we uh, <coughs> sing the hallelujah chorus in the Messiah, everybody what, all of a sudden stands. Why? Because Queen Victoria, when she heard the song, she stood up at the Hallelujah Chorus because she realized there was a monarch greater than her. It's a sign of respect. And when we stand, we show that respect. And then there are moments where the scriptures cause us to kneel or to bow. And, and David says, Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us bow and worship, and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Let us humble ourselves and bow. And when do we bow? A gentleman bows, gets on his knees when he asks someone to marry him, when we come with a big issue. Sometimes people are on their knees, grabbing the legs when they're pleading or begging something. When my kids were young, sometimes they'd be on their knees and grab it like, Dad, Dad, please, can, can you do this? And, and when we kneel and bow, it's a very humble position because there's something humbling about bowing. And when we bow, it says, I can't do it myself, I need you. When bow, it says, I'm not in charge, but you are. And I love it when I see people uh, here, every once in a while, someone in baby, like they're just bowing or kneeling quietly where they are. And our church isn't set up. Some churches are set up for kneeling and other things. But there's something powerful about just bowing and saying, God, I need you. And then David says sometimes, clap your hands. That's another posture. And, and that over and over, we see that we clap, not just to keep beat, but he says, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Why do we clap our hands? We clap sometimes because we're excited and we're appreciative and we're energetic and like, hey, this is a great thing. Other times we clap because we agree. Now, at the end of songs, sometimes when we worship, in person, there will be some applause at the end of the song. And that's not because the musicians are great, although they are. It's not because of how stellar the vocalists are, but they are. It's an agreement. We clap because we're saying, we agree. These words, they're so powerful. All together, we agree. We're one. It's one of those ways we sing together, we unite together, that we agree together. That's what's so powerful. 
And so when we clap, that's what we're saying. Hey, God, I appreciate what you've done. Let's clap our hands. Let's do that. Mind ourselves. We're all in sync together. We're unified around this truth we believe. And then there's a last posture. And I'm surprised sometimes more people don't ask me, like, why do they do that? But it's the posture of just raising our hands. And David speaks about that numerous times. He says, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I'll praise you. I'll lift my hands. I will do that. And so here is David. He talks about raising hands. Now, why do you raise hands? Well, if I said, stick them up, what would you do? You'd raise your hands, right? It's, it's a sign of what? Surrender. When we raise our hands, it's also a very vulnerable position. When we raise our hands, it's saying, I, I can't protect myself. I need you. I'm trusting that you are going to care for me. But there's another deep meaning in Scripture that's not part of our culture today, but was part of the biblical culture of raising hands. And it was used in a ceremony of commitment, of making a contract. The Bible talked about a covenant. And I liken it sometimes to um, when I was a kid, people would be blood brothers or blood sisters. I did this with my cousin, you know, kind of, we pricked our fingers and uh, we were like Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, and we kind of like mixed the blood together. And it's like, I'm committed to you. I'm going to follow it. We're, we're going to live this way. We're going to be like one together, you know, as, as kids kind of do. And they let the blood come together and, and they say, we have a unity. Well, in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, when someone would make a commitment or a contract, or two kings would make a treaty, or a business would make a treaty with someone, they would call it a covenant. It was more than just a contract. It was covenant was something that was like unbreakable. And when they would make a covenant, they would do a special ceremony, and they would first of all take animals, and they would sacrifice them, and they would put them in two different piles, then they would, two people making a covenant would slit their wrists and they would put their wrists together so the blood would mingle and they'd walk in a figure eight all around those two pieces of meat. And they were saying, we're one together, we're making a single covenant. And if one of us breaks or defaults on the covenant, then this would be our destiny. Would we be like two pieces of meat? If we break our covenant, we're like dead meat. It's a bad thing. And we see in the book of Genesis, Abraham does this. God says, Abraham, I'm calling you to a new land. I'm doing a new thing. I'm creating a people. And I'm going to make a promise, a covenant with you. And he has uh, Abraham get uh, some birds and some animal pieces, and he puts them in two piles. Uh, and then instead of God and Abraham walking through, God calls Abraham to go into a deep sleep. And then a lamp and a torch, the symbol of Abraham and God, walk between the pieces. And that covenant that God made with Abraham, like it's an everlasting, it's a committed covenant. And so when we raise our hands, we're saying, hey, I am in a covenant relation with God. I know that God is committed to me and I'm committing to him. Because when Jesus died, did you ever go, why did Jesus die on a cross between two people? How did he die? With his arms, what? Lifted and outstretched. With nails in his wrists, so there's blood, what? Pouring from his wrists. Between what? Two pieces of human flesh. He was making a new covenant. And just as he 
the blood poured from his wrist when we worship and sometimes raise our hands and saying, hey God, I know you love me. I know Jesus did. You're committed to me. I'm committed to you. It's powerful. And so in these last few moments, we're just going to worship together. And I invite you wherever you are, whether you're in your living room, uh, in the kitchen, um, as long as you're not driving, just to stop and pause. And maybe you want to kneel or maybe you want to stand or lift your hands or maybe you want to clap along. Would you let your whole body worship? Because David says it's our whole body. It's the spirit in us, the spiritual world, Christ in us, the awakened spirit in us that's trying to move through our whole body to get us to worship. And I think David was always frustrated when someone's soul, when someone's body would prevent them and imprison them from worshiping. So how does God's spirit in you want to manifest in worship? How does God in you want to celebrate and worship together? Let's do that. And let's become a worshiping community, we, the church, together.